Welcome back to Screen Time. I'm Rokan. And I'm Richard Roper. We're going to discuss 1971. It might take an entire year to describe this, <laughs> but it is actually pretty cool. There's a documentary series that is just dropping right now on the Apple TV Plus about the year 1971 in music ah. and pop culture. If you are too young to remember 1971, you are going to learn some things that will blow your socks off, which is a term that would have been used in 1971. <laughs> or maybe 1951. <laughs> Let's go see Frank Sinatra. He'll blow went, your socks off. I went with blow, not knock. I don't know. Whatever uh, it is. Okay, hold on. We'll do all okay. of that, but first... The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, development, e-commerce, mobile apps, digital marketing. It all drives your overall business success because they believe today's online world is your opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com to get started today. Richard Roper, why 1971? Apple TV Plus has essentially crowned 1971 as the all-time greatest year for rock, pop, and soul music. It's called 1971. Eight episodes. There are a lot of years. I don't think if we went to some of the you know early 80s, for example, you'd be able to do an eight-part series on the music of its times. And these are about 43 minutes apiece. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's a comprehensive look at uh, the music, the musicians, the artists, the politics, the social strife, all of it. So it's really as much about what was happening in America in 1971 as what was happening in the recording studios and on the sound stages and in the concert venues. Yeah. This does have kind of the feel of those CNN documentaries that are mm -hmm. about a year or about a movement, but it goes deeper and it's a little bit more esoteric, I think. First of all, it's wildly entertaining because you're seeing some of the greatest you know, pop and rock musicians and soul musicians of all time in their prime. And we're getting a lot of interviews. We hear audio tape, some of the stuff I've never heard before, and amazing behind-the-scenes footage row. There's stuff, and I know a lot of this stuff has probably been out there in one form or another, not all of it, but I, for example, had never seen John Lennon working out the basics of Imagine when he first started right. you know, working on the song, and even one of his fellow musicians said, I don't think we need the drum there, just you and the piano, and him you know, working through the lyrics. You see him with Yoko Ono yeah, doing Yeah, she interviews. makes a few suggestions, ones I didn't like. <laughs> so it, it really, you know, it, it kicks off by reminding us, Ro, of what, uh, what a tumultuous time it was. People talk about current day, and there's a lot of things going on, but... You know, 1971, we were still, what, four years away from pulling out of the Vietnam War. We were in the, you know, the height of the, the war with the protests getting bigger and stronger right. uh, across college campuses, down the streets. The women's liberation movement was really coming into fruition in 1971. And then all types of protests and uh, marches about racial inequality. There was so much going on. And... I'm going to give you a quick list of songs, Ro, that are featured early on in this docu-series, and they're all from 1971. We mentioned Imagine by John Lennon, Ohio by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, which Neil Young wrote right after hearing about the massacre of students at Kent State University by the National Guard. The Revolution Will Not Be Televised by Gil Scott Heron. Won't Get Fooled Again by The Who. Right. And What's Going On by Marvin Gaye all came out in 71. And I didn't know this. You might have known this. I mean, I'm a I, huge Marvin Gaye fan. and you know, He did so many great songs, entire albums, really, 
about the state of the world. But he was inspired to write what's going on because his brother had been drafted into the army and was going to be sent to Vietnam. And he that's what this he's asking that question about what's going on, but it's such a beautiful song, you almost don't realize the pain and the torment and the protest in the lyrics. Absolutely. When you watch this documentary, you'll see a few things that will surprise you. There's a lot of this footage yeah. and then audio tapes that are being played, but they also have the demos for yeah. almost all the songs. Yeah. So you get to hear what the song sounded like to the artist when they were actually putting it on tape for the first time so they could hear themselves before they would ship it off to the producers who would then you know, build out the entire sonic thing. And speaking of that entire sonic thing, mm. we do get to see Phil Spector in his prime as a producer in this series, and you get a good sense of why he was so successful. Yeah, I mean, obviously a, a troubled life, uh, later years, and a lot of craziness uh, and terrible uh, deeds, but... Um, you could see even John Lennon deferring to him, you know, at times, you know, and saying, this is, we're going to, I want that wall of sound. I want him to do what, for me, what he's done for so many acts throughout the the 60s and now we're into the 70s. And they make the point too, Ro, I think it's kind of interesting because, you know, it's very often, even to this day, people say there's no protest music. That's not true. You know, if you listen to a lot of hip hop and, and other stuff, there's still stuff out there. Oh, yeah. But the documentary makes the point that the music wasn't just reflecting the times. It was influencing the times. It was it was a call to arms. I mean, when Ohio, they got that recorded within a, a week or two of the Kent State tragedy and on the radio. And then we're on stages performing it very, very quickly, especially for that day and age to turn something around that quickly. So, so many of these songs, you know... Uh, were about what's happening, but also urging people because that, you know, let's kind of remember this is way before the internet or anything like that. So one of the ways that young people in particular could feel connected was through the music, what you heard on the radio and what you bought at the record store. You know, a lot of these artists, it wasn't just a 45 single. They would do entire albums that followed the theme of protest and, and change and call to arms, if you will. And they get into the politics. So, you know, you, you can never get too much of Tricky Dick Nixon on the audio tapes, right? <laughs> That's true. You know, and it, it's, swearing up a storm. Yeah, yeah, it's real sinister, too, because... Oh, my. It, it sounds you, like Dan Aykroyd, like a parody. You know? When you play Richard Nixon in the phone recordings, you get... That very, like, you're not supposed to be listening to this. You know it's illicit. Whatever he's doing is about to drop some sort of racial slur or and he does, commit a crime. Anti-Semitic. Yeah. You know, picture, you know, and again, I know there are a lot of folks who are fine fans of screen time and we don't have the same politics. But you just picture, like, Donald Trump only much more cunning and evil and sophisticated in his own weird way and vicious. Yeah. There's, you know, and, and again, you mentioned this, this documentary is about the music, but it's about the times. And there's a recording where he's talking to Henry Kissinger about just dropping a nuclear bomb on Vietnam and wiping out like 200,000 people. And even Dr. Henry Kissinger, you know, the architect of violence. It's like, I don't know if that's going to be the good thing. To do. And Nixon's like, get tough, Henry. He's like basically saying, we got to do something great. I mean, this is the kind of conversation that was happening in the White House. And, of course, there was a lot of stuff about pop culture, and they had files on everybody and actively worked with J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI and other federal authorities to quell the protest movement, to start campaigns of rumors, to do whatever they could to stop these college students and young people from marching in the streets protesting Vietnam 
protesting for equality, all of that stuff. I mean, they were considered anybody who was questioning the moral majority, the silent majority, I guess they call themselves, was a target, was considered a threat to yeah. America. The other piece of this documentary, which I think is really fascinating, is the music changed because the technology changed. Hmm. Computers became huge players in the music industry in 1970 and 1971, oh. specifically because 1971 was the first year of the microprocessor, essentially. Oh, okay. was, they called it a computer on a chip. Wow. But it eventually grew into what we now call the microprocessor. Oh, so okay. you could get a lot more action out of a synthesizer mm -hmm. in 1971 than you could have gotten before. Wow. And there's a really interesting episode which features the Who making Who's Next and Baba O'Reilly. Mm -hmm. And the synthesizer opened to that. And that actually came from a project that Pete Townsend was trying to put together, which was going to be another movie, musical thing like Tommy, because ah. they had not been able to replicate that success in the previous three years. They had wow. Tommy. It was huge. They made all yeah. this money on it. You know, it eventually became a movie that was made a few years after 1971, but mm -hmm. it was really a, a a groundbreaking thing for them. And so they basically said to Pete Townsend, well, what are you going to do next? What are you going to do? Wow. So he, this artistic genius, is like, I'm going to play with this synthesizer for a while. They literally went to the producers uh. and to the money people, and they were like, who's going to tell them this isn't going to work? Wow. I think there's a line in this documentary 1971 was the beginning of the building of the 21st century. Yeah, yeah. David Bowie, I think, actually is the one who says that. And The Who, when you do see the live footage, of them, they're the most ferocious live band of all time. They're all these little dudes. They're all tiny guys. But, <laughs> you know, true. Keith Moon would have to, like, strap, you know, use, like, duct tape to keep the headphones on his cranium. And Townsend <laughs> with the guitar moves. Remember, I think it was Jerry Rubin who tried to you know, storm the stage at Woodstock and got beat over the head with the guitar <laughs> by Pete Townsend. And, and Roger Daltrey whipping the microphone around with the toy. Yeah. I mean, they were just amazing performers. It also, you know, Ro, I always feel like the, the 60s weren't from 1960 to 1970. They were from about 63, 64, because the early 60s were still the 50s in terms of politics and the music The 60s and started with the assassination of JFK. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And and really ended kind of probably with the end of the Vietnam War, so the mid-70s. So 1971, of course it's 1971, but we're knee-deep in the 60s. And there's also, you know, it doesn't shy away, the docuseries on Apple TV Plus does not shy away from showing the dark side, including the Rolling Stones who wanted to do a great thing and do a free concert at Altamont, and they hired the Hells Angels for security, and it went sideways in a horribly tragic fashion with stabbings and murders, and, and the footage of that to this day is shocking because the Stones don't know how to handle it. They don't know what to do. They're playing sympathy for the devil, and then Mick is telling Keith, and they eventually got on a helicopter and got the hell out of there. <laughs> the documentary makes the point a few times about how they're the best magicians at disappearing. Yeah. They're, they got arrested in France. They were about to get, they were being investigated in France, I should say, on drug charges. Mm. And they realized if you get arrested in France, you get taken into custody, there's no bail. Oh, You're wow. going to yeah. sit in that jail cell until your court date and that could be in a couple of hours could be in a couple of weeks could be in a year there are no rules there and since there was this sort of old guy politics post-world war ii the the greatest generation's reaction especially in france yeah. to these young kids with their hair and their sex and their cunnilingus there's a whole thing about oh my that goodness. in them sorry to have morrison to say it, but, and the doors yes there was a, there was like a big you just you got to see this because it does take you back into 
that world in a way in which you think, wow, were people really that provincial? And this yeah. points out that 1971 was a breaking point. Elton John's Mad Man Across the Water came yeah. out in 1971, arguably his best mm. album of that era. Yeah. And that was a song about Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon was the madman across the water. Amazing. To these two young British guys who were creating what the Elton John experience was. Elton John and Bernie Taupin. That's incredible. It also reminds us that uh, Jesus Christ Superstar and the the you know which has become one of the most successful Broadway musicals they recently did the PBS the reinvention of it with John Legend which was a special event and there was the 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 Norman Jewison movie and it played on Broadway forever but it reminds us that it, it, it started off, they couldn't get uh, Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber, even though they were already successful, couldn't get anybody to put it on as a, as a play, either in London or a stage production in New York. And they reluctantly did a cast album before there was, in 1970 before there was ever any performances of it, which is crazy. That'd be as if like, you know, Hamilton was out there for a year and a half and then they staged it. And then it sold like 12 million copies, the double album. And you see all these news reports some call it blasphemy. Others say it's the rebirth of a new type of Christianity. Jesus Christ Superstar. And then the the Broadway production came out. And that was in 1971. And the cover of Time magazine of Jesus Christ Superstar. So even religion was seeing a revolution. Because, right. you know, at first it was considered to be this blasphemous hippie take. But then when you actually listen to the lyrics of the double album or watch the show... It's a very reverent and respectful retelling of the story of Jesus Christ, who was a superstar. And, you know, the lyrics even talk about, you know, why'd you do this before the era of mass communication? You know, Judas asks him that. So it's very much, even though it's about the New Testament, it's very much of 1970, 1971. 50 years on, it feels very similar to today, which gives you that sort of eerie sense of, we're just in this Groundhog Day kind of existence as humans. The eternal themes of strife and the things that tore us apart in these last couple of years were tearing us apart back in the 60s and in the 1970s. In a different way, the cast of characters were different, as you point out, but the essential conflict was the same. Yeah. Plus, if you love the music of that era, you get some really cool takes on the music that you love. Yeah, yeah. It made me want to, as I was watching it, I kept having to stop myself from going to YouTube and watching full concert performances of some of these same songs. Although I do give them credit. One of the great things about it being that long is they let the songs breathe. It drives me nuts when there are concert documentaries or films about acts and they show them playing the music for 30 seconds and, and then someone talks over it. Let us see the performances. There was still a lot of crap on the radio in 1971, though. Yeah. Because if you look at What do you mean? <laughs> what, are you, what are you trying to say? Uh, the number one song in 1971 was Joy to the World, which is a, a great song. The Three Dog Three Night. Three Dog Night. Randy Newman wrote mm -hmm. that song. Yeah. Uh, one Bad Apple from the Osmonds was mm. the number four song. Yeah, no. That was they were like the, they were that was when they were trying to do the Jackson Five ripoff thing, right? They would yeah. Knock Three Times was the number ten song, Tony Orlando and Dawn. Oh yeah, you know, he was Tony Orlando was always into those things where he needed to find out if, you know, he was gonna get lucky. So it was knock three times on the ceiling if you want me, twice on the pipe. If the answer is no. And then there was the yellow ribbon. Remember, he said, tie the yellow ribbon. He always wanted signs <laughs> from the from the woman in his life if he was going to get lucky. Around that old oak tree. Yeah. yeah. Woo. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet and innocent, Donny Osmond. I don't remember that. Yeah. So, you know, you think about that. Donny Osmond and George Harrison next to each other on the charts, on the pop charts in 1971. 
And you know, that's one more footnote we got to mention. Uh, as the film uh, series uh, points out, the concert for Bangladesh that George Harrison did was really the first of its kind in terms of like getting all these superstars together for for a worthy cause. That was 1971. Uh, Chicka Boom. Oh, no. Don't you just love it? Oh, yeah. Can you name that artist? No, I can't. I, no. I, I'm picturing somebody with bell bottoms and long hair and a mustache. Mm, uh, that would be right. That would be Daddy Dewdrop. Yeah, there were still see there was still a place for those stupid novelty songs. Don't you feel like everybody's like suburban mom who was on some sort of <laughs> Adderall or Valium or something was like, oh, I bought this cute Chardonnay. single. It's called Chickaboom. Mm-hmm. Right, we brought it home for the kids. Uh, Partridge Family makes the top one hundred. Which one? I woke up in love this morning. Oh, okay. That was uh, David Cassidy and then uh, Susan Day on keyboards, which were always unplugged. I think right. Right. Well, David Cassidy actually performed. He well, yeah, he was a pop star. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and I and I believe that his mom on the show, uh, Shirley Jones, the great Broadway star, right, right? Broadway yeah. star. I think she's like a half a egot or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and then uh, I don't, I didn't, never trusted Ruben the manager. I figured he was taking a bigger cut than he probably should have. Right. Well, he was taking a swing. That's for sure. Oh come on. Man. All right, uh, let's leave 1971 to its own. Okay. Go to Apple TV Plus and watch this if you like that music or if you like anything of nostalgia or you want to tie. Then to now. Yeah, it's pretty great stuff. Does it all. Okay. You know who else does it all? Portillo's. Yeah, you're right. Portillo's. <laughs> you want a salad? You want a sandwich? You want <laughs> the best chocolate cake ever? Yeah. Fries are pretty great. Cheesy fries are particularly amazing. Oh, man. Portillo's. If you live in the Midwest, you live in California, you live in Arizona, you live in Florida, you can stop by a Portillo's today. If you've not had... A real Italian beef, Chicago style. Yeah, okay. Hot, sweet, wet. Remember that. Or dipped. They either say, depends on who you're talking to. You see either wet or dipped. Okay. Because mm-hmm. you could have the sauce on the side, but you like to just have it come to you. Yeah, dipped. Or they, they dip they it They dip already. it for you. Yeah. They take it. Pre-dipped. They, they, they take the, the whole sandwich and they just they, they uh-huh. put tongs around it and they drop it into whatever that sauce is and they swirl it around a little bit and they pull it out so that the uh-huh. bread, you can't really hold the bread anymore. No, no, no. You, you, I always put on a shirt that's going to have to eat laundered anyway before right. I eat their Italian beef because there's going to be some on the, on the With shirt. the hot and the sweet peppers. That's, that's a really good way to go. And if you don't want the hot, you just go with the sweet. Nice. Go sweet, not hot. Okay. That's how you have to remember to do it when you're going sweet, through the not hot. Mm-hmm. And you got to say it like that. Portillo's.com for all the information that counts. P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S. Portillo's.com. What not to watch? You know, some weeks we only have just really one entry. Sometimes none. Sometimes nine. Uh, This week, I really just have one what not to watch movie row. It is in theaters. And even though we just on on Tuesday's podcast talked about the return to theaters, um, it's called Spiral from the Book of Saw. This is the ninth installation of the Saw torture porn franchise. You know, I, those films did very well because, again, they were low budget. They Occasionally, they'd have pretty big stars. Danny Glover was in, in, in you know, people like that. I never got into them, Ro, because they are torture porn. It, it, the first one was kind of intriguing because, you know, these people are chained in this place and there's some serious voice and they're they're being punished for their sins. It's like a cheap knockoff of seven the david fincher masterpiece but i you know to bring it back and i guess jigsaw the original killer from saw is dead but so for the ninth installment and chris rock you know listen he was great in fargo he wants to do dramatic stuff he wanted to do like a horror film i don't know why he just didn't do an original film though work with jordan peele work with john krasinski somebody like that so now there's a copycat killer 
who's knocking off cops in New York City. And, you know, it's the kind of scenes where, like, a guy's strapped into a device on train tracks and there's this metal clamp around his tongue because he talked too much. And now he has the choice of either severing his own tongue or getting run over by a train. That's the kind of stuff they have in these movies, which I don't find scary, just disgusting. Yeah. And it's just a lot of that, even though it's got this wonderful cast. Uh, Chris Rock, he plays a New York detective who's being targeted by the spiral uh, jaw, jigsaw, whatever the F he is. Copycat. Looks like it's a copycat. His dad is Samuel L. Jackson, you know, who's a, who was the former chief of police. And maybe he's actually the one doing it. They always have two or three, you know, red earrings and everything. But I just found it to be crap. Just just, just garbage, glossy garbage where it's just an excuse for these extended torture porn scenes. So I hated What Not to Watch installment today, Spiral from the Book of Saw. Do not watch the Saw. Is this the kind of movie you would give zero stars to? A one. I give, I give one. Only because there's a little bit of dark humor and the cast is so good. And I was probably in a generous mood. I don't, and I want Chris Rock, you know, to keep trying. But I, I would love to talk to him and ask him, like, why would you want to do a Saw movie? It just seems it's beneath him. Totally beneath him. You, like you said, he's on a roll. Yeah. So. All right, the Thursday Three. All right. Now, these I love, and a couple of these in particular, I think, are right in your wheelhouse, row kind of things. Things I will want to watch yeah, this weekend. for sure. And many of the fine screen time listeners as well. A movie called Georgetown, and one of our favorite actors of all time, Christoph Waltz. Oh, yeah. He's making his directorial debut, but he's also starring. And now, Ro, this is based on a true story I had never heard about. It's based on a guy who was about 50 years old. He was this con man, social climber in Washington, D.C. in 2000s, early 2010s. And this guy, he's 50, and he just kind of arrives on the scene claiming he's a brigadier general in the Iraqi army because he's doing kind of double espionage stuff, that he was in the French Foreign Legion, and he's got he's from Germany, it appears, and he's got all these accents, which Christoph Waltz does beautifully, of course. And he marries this elderly journalist who had just buried her husband. She's 90, and he's like 50, and they become this society couple, but everyone's like, What's going on here exactly? So then it becomes kind of a reversal of fortune deal, like the Klaus von Bülow thing, because the 91-year-old esteemed journalist who's kind of his entree into Washington Mm -hmm. power brokers and society, she takes a fall on a flight of stairs in the uh, corner rules at a homicide. Hmm, I wonder who the chief suspect would be. This is all based on a true story. Wow. And the movie's called Georgetown, and they keep saying at the beginning of the end of the movie, this has nothing to do with the real-life story. It's like, oh, come on! (laughs) But it's really cool, and it's one of those con man, you know, it's a little bit of catch me if you can. I mentioned Reversal of Fortune. We know this guy is no good. But Christoph Waltz is so convincing, there are even moments where characters in the movie are like, Maybe he really did broker that agreement between the Iraqis and the Americans. You know, he find he gets in the room a lot. Yeah. With with big t- and then if you and if you become friends with the ambassador to France, then the senator from Wyoming thinks, well, if he's friends with the ambassador, I guess I'll be friends with them. And he works all that. So slick and cool and amazing because it's based on a true story. And where do we find that? Uh, that's on your streaming. You can get that streaming virtual cinemas and in some movies uh, theaters as well. All right. Number two on the Thursday three. This is another one that I did not know about. 
that is based on a true story. And it's called Dream Horse. It was actually the subject of a documentary in Sundance a few years ago. And it's based, and Rokan, you're a guy who has been an owner mm-hmm. of racehorses, has yes. you know been deeply involved in the industry. Mm-hmm. This is based on the true story. There's a Welsh bartender and store cashier. She doesn't know anything about horses, but she hears some chat in the pub from a guy, a local guy who had been, you know, had trained and owned a few horses and she's always loved livestock. Her husband used to be a farmer. She buys a broodmare at bargain basement prices. She gets together all the local colorful townsfolk in the Welsh mining town to go Mm -hmm. in on it. You know, everybody puts in a tenner a week, if you will. And the mare gives birth to a young thoroughbred and they call him Dream Alliance because they have an alliance of like 20 owners of the horse. And the horse goes on to race hmm. and do well and then do better. And then maybe even run in the Welsh Grand Championship against all odds. The movie's called Dream Horse. So you know exactly where this movie's going, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And you know there's going to be a moment where, where poor Dream Alliance, it looks like a tendon. And that could be bad. They might have to put her down right there on the track. Oh, boy. But she's a fighter. He's a fighter. And so is mom, played by Tony Collette, basically, who loves the horse and is finally being seen. And Damian Lewis. Now, we know Damian Lewis from Billions, right? Right. And Homeland. Homeland, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. And he is such a chameleon that I never knew this. He actually is of Welsh descent. So now we're hearing his real accent. He plays like the local guy who's almost lost everything with his gambling, knows a little bit about horses, so he gets his redemption. All the colorful characters. you got the town drunk who takes his pants off in the bar. Uh, so it's very much in the tradition of like, you know. The, I could sue for that. Yeah. But in the tradition of like the full Monty, you know, or yeah. calendar girls where it's inspired by a true story and, and everybody's just so lovable. But Dream Alliance, man, that horse. I know there's probably more than one horse. It's probably not really Dream Alliance and everything. But I believe it's Dream Alliance. And it's just, you you know this. It's like, you know, come on, man. If you if you don't tear up in a movie about an underdog horse. <laughs> I know. In a Welsh mining town. I know. You're I, dead. I would just want to tell you. I just want to tell you. I have never gone through any movie about a horse without yeah. bawling my eyes out. Secretariat. I, uh, I cry. Seabiscuit. Seabiscuit. Oh. Maybe God. the best. I, I I would say this is maybe the best movie of its kind since Seabiscuit, which is almost 20 years ago now, wow. because it, it is so much about the underdog. And again, I think if it's not based on a true story, you're going, oh, come on. Really? You know, like this Bart keep, you know, buys a horse, and but it all really happened. Why do we keep saying that? If it... Because you know, it's true. You, you, would, you wouldn't believe this if they made a movie out of it. That's the way that we looked at the last, like, less than three years in America. I wouldn't believe Independence Day if there hadn't really been aliens that came down on the 4th of July in the 90s. Uh, and well, the and thing- listen, if you watched 60 Minutes, <laughs> now you have to believe. Marco Rubio. In that. Told us. So. Yes. Yeah. Marco Rubio's worried about those Tic Tacs that are flying around in the sky. At number one on the Thursday Three, things to watch this weekend. Those Who Wish Me Dead is an old-fashioned kind of neo-Western set in modern times it's from the same writer director of sicario hell or high water oh the tv series yellowstone all of which i love angelina jolie is back as a movie star in this row and yeah it's over the top but so she plays a smoke jumper 
like oh. in you know in big sky country yeah. and she's traumatized because a year earlier she couldn't save three boys she read the winds wrong and she couldn't get into the forest fire and save these three boys so now they put her up in duty in a tower so she's like a spotter but she's not fighting the fires you know while she kind of recovers from this and she stumbles across by accident this little boy who's on the run from a pair of assassins because there's a big political scandal his father's been killed he happens to be literally running through the woods so now she's going to protect him so it's her chance at redemption and the twin assassins are going to do anything they can to kill her, to kill the little boy, to kill anybody else who gets in their path. And while all of that is happening, there's a huge, huge forest fire crackling and burning in the background, which the assassins set as a diversion. Oh. So, it, you know, there are times where you're like, would that really have happened? But who cares? It's really brilliantly done. And I love Angelina Jolie as a movie star. Right. She's commanding. She still obviously looks great. Uh, she's great with this little boy. And there's a lot of kind of almost references and inside winks. At one point, you know, he says to her, you know, she doesn't eat much. And he goes, no wonder why you're so skinny. Which people say about her. And she goes, I'm lean. I'm lean, okay? And it's almost as if she's like saying to the people in the audience, I'm fine. I'm 45. I've been a movie star for 27 years. I'll be in one for 30 more years. But even with all the baggage attached and everything we know about her, we believe her as a smoke jumper. Yeah. We believe that she can handle herself in the woods and jump out of planes and do all that crazy stuff. The movie's called Those Who Wish Me Dead. It's probably my favorite movie of the year so far. Wow. I loved it. I really loved it. Angelina Jolie is a movie star. The first time you saw her in Gia, you're like, yep, that actress is going to be somebody. The same way you saw Tom Cruise in Risky Business. That guy is going to be a movie star. Yep. So I'm really glad that she's back. Me too. And so is she. And so are her accountants. Those Who Wish Me Dead, where do we find that? That's in theaters, and you can find it in the virtual cinemas as well. All right. So we got to pay for it, even though we're already paying Listen, for everything else. we got to pay for everything. Yeah. Except yeah. for this podcast. <laughs> That's true. Okay. The Roan Rubber Podcast is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. AmericanEagle.com is a full-service global digital agency providing best-in-class web design, development, hosting, digital marketing services, and so much more. Visit AmericanEagle.com for more information. Tim Melanius and Renee Nelson are our executive producers. Brian Altimer, our music and production director. We'll see you next time. <laughs>